Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sydney Writers' Festival and welcome to this conversation about life in the landscape with these three outstanding writers, Robbie Arnott, Fiona McFarlane and James Mackenzie Watson. I'm Susan Wyndham. I'm a journalist, a writer and editor. And uh, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians and storytellers of this land, and pay my respects to the elders past and present and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here today. We're particularly aware of the power and vulnerability of the land and its people because Australian landscapes and the stories they inspire are our subject today. Uh, I'd like to introduce our speakers. At the end, Robbie Arnott, who's had great success with his three novels, Flames, The Rain Heron and now Limberlost. I'm delighted he was named a Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelist, an award I started <laughs> in his early days. And he has twice won the Age Book of the Year once when I was a judge and again just now this year. So, so I kind of feel some ownership of him. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, <laughs> Robbie has also won and been shortlisted for numerous other prizes that I had nothing to do with. <laughs> Born in Launceston, he's moved all the way to Hobart and he has a job in, a day job in advertising where he is still busy, busily writing his next book. Fiona McFarlane has leapt to international acclaim with her three books of fiction, a collection of short stories, High Places, which won the Dylan Thomas Prize for a first book, the novels The Night Guest, which was winner of several awards and shortlisted for several others, and most recently The Sun Walks Down, which is currently shortlisted for the Walter Scott Prize for historical fiction, soon to be announced. Fiona comes from Sydney and is currently teaching creative writing at the University of California in Berkeley. And uh, James Mackenzie Watson, last but not least, because he's the newest of our authors, with his first novel, Denizen, published last year after winning the Penguin Literary Prize for an unpublished manuscript. James was raised in uh, regional, northern regional New South Wales and uh, has lived around regional New South Wales and is now living in Sydney and working as a nurse and co-hosting the fabulous podcast James and Ashley Stay Home about writing and health issues. Now we've got three very different novels set in different parts of Australia, different periods of history. And the first part of this game show is going to be called uh, Plot or Place. <laughs> um, I'm going to begin chronologically, Fiona, because The Sun Walks Down takes place over a week in September 1883 in the Flinders Ranges of Australia, South Australia, sorry. And I'd like you to just tell us briefly what the book is about and then, which came first, the story or the place? Sure. When you said chronologically, I thought you meant because I'm the oldest panelist. 
<laughs> and yet my feet don't touch the ground. So, <laughs> um, so uh, the sun walks down. It's set, as Susan said, in the Flinders Ranges in South Australia. It is uh, set over the course of one week. A young boy, a six-year-old boy called Denny, goes missing in a dust storm at the very beginning of the book. And we spend a week with Denny's family and uh, the residents of the town he lives in and various visitors who are all involved in some way in the search for Denny. So there's a lot of um, life in the landscape taking place in the book. Uh, the place came first, actually. I was at Adelaide Writers Week with my first novel and went for a road trip afterwards and saw the Flinders for the first time. And I'm sure that there are people in this room who have visited the Flinders and know how incredibly extraordinary it is as a landscape. And when I encountered it for the first time, I was just struck by, you know, its beauty, its, its geological interest, um, and also the colonial ruins that are scattered, scattered all the way through it. And that's when I learned about uh, this sort of 10-year period when people thought they could come to the desert and grow wheat and uh, established a whole lot of towns which now no longer exist. And I thought, I want to write about that. Mm. Yeah, okay. Robbie, your book, Limbalost, is set during World War II and the decades after in rural Tasmania. Um, could you tell us a bit about the story and which came first, plot or place? Yeah, the, the novel follows, uh, well, initially begins with a young guy named Ned and he's 15 years old living on his family's orchard at the very end of World War II. It's in northern Tasmania uh, in the Tamar Valley near the mouth of Kanamaluka, the Tamar River. Um, and Ned is desperately trying to hunt as many rabbits as he can in effort to aid the war effort, war effort so he can skin them and sell their pelts to be turned into slouch hats. His two older brothers are away at war. He doesn't know if they're alive or dead. He's on the orchard with his father, a survivor of World War I, who's really just trying to hold things together, and his sister. And we follow Ned both through that one pivotal summer in his life, but also flashing forward to see him as he grows older. And at the end, we... We kind of see the entirety of his life, but also how that one summer affected everything that happened to him um, throughout his entire life. And it's very much set on this orchard and, and on the river and around the landscape of northern Tasmania. Um, and I, I can't accurately answer whether plot or place came first. Um, they're the same thing to me, and especially for this book. There's, there's no story without the landscape that is so inspired by it, and there's no landscape without the story that lives within it for me. So I, I didn't really think about it like that. I have in other times, but I, I couldn't really pick one. They just kind of swam up together. It's um, country you're very familiar with. Yeah, it's a country um, where my family is from, particularly where my grandfather grew up and I grew up. And um, they're so intertwined, I, I wish I could have a straighter answer for you. But No, but, I don't want a straight no. answer. I want a true answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the same okay. thing, plot and place for me. Yeah, okay. And Denison is a, for want of a, a, a less cliched description, a contemporary thriller, a part of this newish and very popular genre of rural noir. Um, what's your story about and where is it set and which came first? Uh, so Denison follows, uh, at the beginning at least, a nine-year-old boy named Parker who's growing up on a, a remote cattle property in western New South Wales. And he's worried that there's something wrong with his brain. And this is something that's apparently confirmed when he does something abhorrent as a child. 
Uh, and years later, when Parker's an adult and a father himself, he returns to the bush for a camping trip with old friends. And during this camping trip, he's forced to address the things he did as a child and their consequences, their far-reaching consequences. Uh, I grew up in Coonabarbara in New South Wales. It's The book is kind of set on an amalgamation of towns in central western and far west New South Wales. Like Robbie, I don't think I can give a, a clear answer as to which came first because they feel so intertwined. Although for me, the book's very much about mental health in the bush and it's about the way the landscape shapes how mental health is experienced and the outcomes of mental health and the way mental health resources are allocated and accessed in the bush. And that story is so shaped by the geography and by the landscape. So similar to, to Robbie, I think it's very, very hard for me to, to disentangle them. Also because the bush and the sort of bush I grew up in, rugged volcanic mountain bushland, is such a, a spectacular, dramatic place. And that certainly inspired the book and, and the, the themes of the book and, and the language in the book, that it feels very, very hard to disentangle. Mm, thank you. I wanted to ask you each about your very evocative titles, um, which tell a lot about the books in their different ways. Just briefly, though, Robbie, why is the book called Limberlost? Yeah, it, um, it takes a title from a very old children's book from America called A Girl of the Limberlost uh, by Jean Stratton Porter. They were like the um, Harry Potter of their time in the 1910s, hugely popular series of kids' books. And that was actually the name of the orchard where my grandfather grew up. It's, it's still there um, on the West Tamar. Um, and his mother named it because she loved those books so much as, as a child. They were her favourite books. When they bought this orchard, there was a forest on there, reminder of the orchard, uh, reminder of the forest and a girl of the Limberlost. And then when I came to write this book, I just stole it. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was a really evocative name. I didn't really think too much about what it meant. I try not to think about what anything means. Um, but it felt like an evocative piece of language to me, so I, I took it for the book. Um, and never ex thinking that I'd ever have to explain it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's taken from real life. It's, it's still a place now. And there's a little church there called the Old Kirk, where um, my great-grandparents had their ashes interred on the wall with the big name Limberlos just um, kind of emblazoned above them. It's a beautiful word, even without knowing its history. It's, and it's a book I read as a child, given to me by my mother, who would love it. So uh, it probably resonates with other people here, if you're old enough. <laughs> um, let me ask you about denizen. What, it's a great word, and I looked it up to get the full meaning of it. Could you explain? I, I didn't realise that it wasn't common vernacular. Um, one of my colleagues, when I was nursing in Dubbo, spent a whole year before the book came out, and she saw a copy thinking it was called Denzel, and that was the name of her character. Um, <laughs> but a denizen, it's similar to a citizen, where a citizen is a, someone who formally belongs to a place. You know, we're citizens of our... Uh, country of nationality. A denizen is someone who informally belongs, and it's often something you hear applied to animals like denizens of the deep or kangaroos being denizens of the bush. And apart from being a really beautiful and evocative word, I really liked the uh, the connotations that has in the context of the book, you know, again, which is a book about mental health in the bush and the way the landscape is forever trying to buck people off in one way or another. It's very hard to ever really be a citizen of places like that. You can only ever be a denizen. Mm. Is there also, in our contemporary use of the word, a sort of criminal quality, you know, a denizen of the, 
the back alleys of Darlinghurst or something, or am I making that up? Well, because no one... So many people don't have an association coming in that they can form their own associations based on the book. The number of people... I did an event last night, and two people independently asked what the title meant. Um, As I said, I didn't realise that it was a word that... I probably would have chosen something that had a little bit more recognition if I thought... I realised I was going to be asking questions about the title forevermore. Um, (laughs) But, like I said, it's something that feels very evocative to me in that context. Mm, Thank you. Fiona, the sun walks down. How beautiful is that phrase, or sentence, I should say. Um, Could you explain it a little, please? Thank you. Um, I'm terrible at titling my own work, so my best friend names all my books and cats. So uh, I should thank thank her for it, Emma, wherever you are. Um, uh, If you look on my computer, it's just called Lost Boy Novel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Sun Walks Down is a literal translation of one of the Swedish words for sunset. So... uh, there are many, many characters in my novel, and one of them, and, and some of them are artists, and artists gen, generally behave fairly badly uh, in all kinds of ways. One of them is a Swedish landscape painter, and he has come to the Flinders and is experiencing these really extraordinary sunsets, which he believes have been fated. You know, no one else in the world can see these sunsets, and he has been brought to the ends of the earth in order to paint them. Uh, it's sort of a gift to him, and whether or not that's true becomes sort of clear later on in the novel, but for him, this is a, a sort of a and he's thinking a great deal about how you translate the, the sublimity of landscape of what you're seeing onto the canvas or how you translate the world into art. And one of the things he thinks about and notices is that this Swedish word for sunset means the sun walks down and how active that is and how beautiful that is. And, and uh, so when, when my friend Emma read the book, she said, this is what it should be called. You realise that, do you? <laughs> and now here I am explaining it to everybody. Perfect. <laughs> Um, let's look at the landscape a bit more in detail, um, leaving people out of it mostly for the moment. I, I felt so much I was in the places that you described and you must have worked very hard to create that. It's almost like there's a map in which your characters move around. And I just wondered if you could each give us a, a visual and sensual description of your place. Fiona, stay with you for the moment. Well, the Flinders Ranges is, uh, it's an arid landscape. Uh, it is above Goida's line in South Australia, which uh, is the line above which agricultural planting is no longer possible, which is why it was sort of silly that people tried to grow wheat there. But one of the things that's so incredible about it is that these the mountains of the Flinders are incredibly old uh, and geologically really unique. It's the only place in the world that you can see 350 million continuous years of geological history just by looking at the side of a mountain. So it's sort of classic red, red dirt country, I suppose, big sky country, all of those things. But um, it's also full of pine trees, native pine trees. So it's, in some ways, everything you might imagine uh, a desert uh, inland region might be. And then it's actually full of all these really glorious surprises. Mm. And unlike uh, James and Robbie, it's not your country. It's not somewhere you've lived. You have had, I think, a few trips there. How did you create this detailed reality of the place and how how much did you imagine? What was your combination of research and and sort of invention in the landscape? Uh, 
similarly to the, the question about landscape earlier for, for these two, I think it's really hard to disentangle. I think that one of the great joys of fiction uh, is that it reminds us that we're bodies in the world and it reaches out to us through the sensory details of, of the world we experience. And so every second that I spent in the Flinders, and I did do a number of trips back there after I realised that this is what I was writing about, was about just thinking, you know, what does the, what does the wind feel like? What can I see right now? What is the temperature rising out of the ground? And And I suppose just trying to build that into the book in just a really, really physical and sensory way so that the way it felt for me as a body to be in this place could somehow be built into the book. And you invented some place names, didn't you? Why did you do that? Uh, it's just a lot easier to invent places <laughs> and they, they don't have to be historically correct. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there were all sorts of reasons. I, I think, um, you know, there are big questions around country and ownership and custodianship of country. And uh, I wanted to sort of create my own little area within the Flinders that meant that I could play around with things while still remaining respectful of what's actually there. So most of the larger context is all is all real, but there's this, this little pocket. Um, if you know the, the Flinders Ranges and the Willocker Plain, you can probably guess what town my town fairly is based on, but... Um, partly because it's never mentioned and other towns that exist are, but also because some of the towns that I drew on don't exist anymore at all. We don't, we don't, we know very little about them because they existed for 10 years or so and then, and then disappeared. Are there ruins there There still? are. Yeah. There are. Whole ghost towns, mm. ghost cattle stations. You go for a bushwalk and find a, a chimney just by a creek. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, quite sad country in a way. Beautiful, but that part of it quite sad, I imagine. In just everything that's been there and been lost, you know, going back into deep history. Yeah. Um, Robbie, tell tell me about the patch of land, because you're not absolutely specific about where you're setting your your farm and your country um, and you, you you sometimes take quite a panoramic view of it and then pull into the detail could you describe the place for us in more yeah so more in detail? the novel the north the orchard limberlost is set on the western banks of Kanamaluka, the tama river which is in northern tasmania um, actually it reminded me quite a lot when i was crossing the hawkesbury recently it's like felt quite similar to me with really wooded hills with that eucalyptus forest and a big saltwater estuary that's quite wide and you see the boats coming up and down it on a, like a lazy day and it's, it's, it's a really beautiful um, part of the country and, and it empties out into the Bass Strait and where it empties out there's beaches and also large dolerite cliffs really cragging and um, the British imperialists used to drive past after dropping off um, some convicts at Port Arthur and they'd be bored so they'd do target practice with their cannons at these sort of cliffs and just ancient, beautiful rock faces that you can still see pocked with cannon shell. Um, it's very strange. But it's, it's a quite a dramatic landscape and um, it's really important to me when writing about it, both in this kind of coastal tea tree scrub and then dry sclerophyll forest and jagged rock faces and beaches that, and I really agree with what Fiona was talking about, that, you know, Getting that feeling of that place is very important and conveying that, but it's a combination of accuracy of detail, so making sure you're feeling the wind on your face and getting everything right, along with an accuracy of feeling. And that's what I try and 
focus a lot on when writing about a, this particular place or any place is how it feels to be there and what the emotional response to be within that landscape is. And as many of us would know who've spent time in places like this, it's, at least for me, one of the most beautiful feelings is that being dwarfed by nature and feeling quite insignificant in both sense of scope and time around you. And I wanted that to come through in Ned's experiences through the book, that, you know, he has this deep, strange connection to this savagely beautiful world around it, but he can't really explain it. And he just knows it's there and that he's having these strong emotional reactions. And I guess that's what I wanted to come through, mm. is, is not so much photorealistic detail, but an evocative sense of what it feels like to be there. Mm. And James, tell us about the the sort of parameters and the, the detail of the country that you're writing about? The, the town itself is sort of um, situated further west than the, the real uh, place that I'm writing or was, in, you know, inspired to write about because, again, in writing about the socioeconomic and health factors, it makes more sense to be more isolated to make that point better. But the town itself, the, the majority of the book takes place on a farm um, in... Uh, Western New South Wales, and it's very, very much inspired by farms that I spent countless weeks and months on as a child and a teenager near Coonabarabran. Coonabarabran's a beautiful part of the world and quite unique in that it's got uh, this spectacular, stunning mountain range uh, running through it, the Warren Bungles, this really dramatic skyline, um, and a lot of the farmland that is built either side of that mountain range is then sort of built into these, uh, you know, you've got these beautiful valleys that are used for grazing cattle that have been cleared, but there are also these pockets of absolutely dense, inhospitable scrubland and these rocky, perilous crags that, you know, you could never clear enough to farm um, that just sort of become space on these lands. It's interesting hearing what Robbie was just saying about, uh, you know, trying to evoke in the writing, the sense of emotion that the place inspires. And I know for me, I feel like the, the building block for my writing is emotion. Everything I write starts in as emotion and usually is me trying to work through it because it's cheaper than therapy to write. Um, and I was a, a fairly volatile teenager growing up in, in that sort of landscape. And that land is so brilliantly tied to that intense emotion to me that it, it feels very hard to unpick them. And so to me, that kind of farmland and that bush is quite a perilous, twisting maze full of uh, dangers and, you know, hidden risks. And that feels like that quite closely mirrors how I felt for much of my teenage years. And those two things feel so closely tied together that I find, I hope that my writing about the landscape is also evoking that sense of um, fear and and distress because I think that uh, in trying to write that sort of high emotion, if you can if you can mirror those two things, um, it can be very effective. And I hope I've been able to do that in this book. Well, you evoke trauma and terror and um, intense emotions of all kinds very vividly and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite visceral and, and uh, scary at times and so congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let's put some people into these landscapes now and I'll stay with you, James. And um, you're writing um, really from the point of view of Parker, your, your young 
boy and uh, young man as he grows up. And um, the, the vision of the country, as you've just said, really changes according to his state of mental health. And I wondered if you could explain a little bit more how you did that and how you use the different places. Because um, I think the creek bed that the kids go to is terribly important. It's sort of a, a retreat from the farms and the world of their parents. But it's also the place where the most brutal and frightening things take place. So could you talk about how you developed that from Parker's point of view? I think... Growing up, I always had a sense of the landscape and the bush around me as being this vast, monolithic, very, very emotionally charged place. And I know that when I was in a good place, it was beautiful and it was stunning and it was calming. But when I wasn't, like I said, it felt like such a, a dangerous, um, visceral place. And... The book largely follows, as you say, Parker's journey from childhood through adolescence, um, but more specifically his, his mental health. And as his mental health is in different stages uh, through his life, the bush appears a bit differently to him. The creek bed where much of the book is set, where this abhorrent thing that he does as a child happens, but also where he returns as an adult as a place of refuge and solace, um, is by turns this beautiful uh, vista, but also this brutal, um, very dark, very, uh, very entrapping place that is dwarfed by the, the magnitude of the landscape around him. Um, and I, I hope, and as I say, I feel like that very much reflects my experience of the bush. It is a, you know, a stunning, beautiful place, um, but it is also incredibly perilous. And it's somewhere that we don't necessarily uh, really belong, I feel. It's, you know, we've, um, there's 60,000 years of culture and history that has managed to coexist beautifully with, with the bush. And I think there's, perhaps an, an element of settler's guilt in writing about the bush in this way. It's very, very hard to, to claim this very inhospitable land and to, to work this inhospitable land to our, to our benefit. Um, and, and that ties into this, this sense of, of not quite belonging and, and that being reflected in the emotional content of the book. This might be a good time for you just to give a little reading from the book to yeah. illustrate what we're talking about. Uh, so this is from about a third of the way through the book, talking about the town of Collidae, where the novel set. It wasn't until I was in high school that I could place Collidae in context. Before that, it was just town, the nearest collection of shops, somewhere I hated going because I was sick to death of the 45-minute drive through the scrub. According to the post office's chart of mailing divisions, Collidae was in western New South Wales. That seemed ridiculous. The same map clearly showed that we were in the state's eastern half. Even the region marked central western New South Wales was practically coastal. If Collidae was in western New South Wales, then Broken Hill was somewhere off the shore of Perth. <laughs> it was something my father spat at the evening news that gave this demarcation meaning. A reporter describing stock losses in the southern highlands warned that without government intervention, the area risked economic annihilation. You know how they know that, he said. He wasn't talking to me. He would have said it whether I was there or not. Because they saw it happen to us. A few days later, when a follow-up story reported that the disaster had been averted with an injection of taxpayer funds, it clicked. We weren't Western New South Wales because we were in the west of the state, but because we were west of everybody else. 
It was a euphemism for isolation. We were the last town in the last slopes before the vast flat of the interior desert, a settlement occupied only by farmers desperate enough to tend land in such harsh country and the service providers, doctors, grocers, teachers, they needed to survive. There'd be no point spending government money here because so few would benefit. Eventually, the town would wither and die, its supplies cut off until its denizens fled like wild animals looking for water. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, your town is a rather sad and run-down place, isn't it? Is that the truth of what towns look like out there? No. Not all of I, I them, think, obviously, no. but... I think I think that's a, a pretty bleak picture in service of the novel as a whole. I think having spent a lot of time in these parts of the world, they are not of the whole like that. They face incredible challenges, um, climate, environmental, you know, my thing as a nurse, as a health advocate, as someone writing largely about health is uh, the way healthcare is not particularly equitably metered out in some of these towns. That's a huge problem. But I think that these towns tend to have a much more vibrant and uh, uh, resourceful community than that specific image would have you believe. Mm. And interestingly, um, Parker, when he gets older, moves to Sydney. And Sydney, the city, is almost a healing experience for him. It's not usually the way we read about cities in literature. Often people are escaping to the, you know, the wilderness, the bush, the, the beach, wherever to um, get away from the pressures of the city. Did you think about I mean, did you intend Sydney to be a positive presence in this book? Yeah, because that was my experience. Mm. Um, that, that much is very much drawn on my life. I left Coonabarabra when I was 18, and I was pretty well off the rails by that point, and probably... Well, well, okay, I don't want to delve too deep, but you, it's very I hard was... to think of you as a boy <laughs> off the rails. I would... <laughs> Could you explain briefly? Robbie oh. said that when we sat down. He said, you seem so lovely, but this is a very dark book. Yeah, yeah you're, <laughs> you're a dark person. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I, I was one of those teenagers who fell through... The book's about this incredible tension that exists in rural New South Wales, rural Australia in general, which is that on the one hand, we fetishise how harsh the country is and how inhospitable the land is. And on the other hand, we celebrate how everyone's as tough as nails and gets on with it and says, she'll be right, like it's mm -hmm. the cure for cancer. And no one seems to notice that those two things don't work. They're, they're completely incompatible. And the gap in between those things, people fall in there and they die. You know, they end up... This is why mental health outcomes in the bush tend to be so bleak, because the services are just not there to, to meet people when they need help. The rate of mental illness in the bush is exactly the same as it, in, as, as it is in the cities. It's one of the few things where there's no disparity. Everything else is wall-to-wall -wall terrible. We've got more heart disease, cancer, diabetes, you name it. Mental health's the same, but the suicide rate is double. Mm. And... To my mind, that's because there's this huge gap in... I can't remember what the question was now. I'm so sorry. I've just gone on a tangent. <laughs> I can't about, remember either, but I'm engrossed in the answer. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, my point being that um, I think for me, you know, I left Coonabarabran because I realised I needed to get out of the bush. I didn't have access to the services I needed. I was a very depressed, very emotionally volatile teenager. I came to Sydney, I got the mental health treatment I needed and I flourished. And I spent the 10 years after that trying to write about my experience and make sense of that. Mm. Uh, so that's why that's in the book, because that's what happened to me. Mm. Okay, thank you. Robbie, can we... Um 
talk about your people and Ned, I suppose, in particular. Um, you, you follow him over a summer and then over several decades and both he and the country change. Um, how did you create his point of view? We're so closely in with, with Ned, but also with his father and with some other characters. Um, and also you've had to go back in time and create a, a place and a type of character um, that is not of now. So I'm just wondering how you imagine your way into that. And also the background of war is so important to what they're going through. Could you talk about that a bit? I mean, you picked this time for particular reasons. Yeah, sure. Um, I really wanted to write about the sort of families and actually quite a lot of the men I knew who were old men when I was growing up and and their very different take on the world and their very different approach to life, to what life was like in the 90s when I was growing up. And this idea of like a very twisted form of stoicism, of of never speaking about your emotions, never giving anything away, never letting anyone know anything about you, always just carrying on, kind of like this weird, perverted Protestantism going on. Um, but at the same time, I was also very aware that a lot of these people were very tender and filled with love and were just not very able to express that or able to express how they felt or did not have any of the tools to express any of that masculine tenderness, which I'm very interested in because I'm very bored of the idea of, you know, Australian novels about tough men in the outback who, who just get on with things because, as James has been so wonderfully demonstrating, that's not what life is like. And I wanted to, and a way of exploring that was to have this young boy having these very intense experiences with his family and with brothers at war and with a landscape he loved but couldn't talk about because he didn't know how to and then moving through life without ever fully coming to grips with it and trying to do the right thing, always trying to be the best version of himself he could be, but never quite nailing how he could express that because he never had the tools. And that's where it came from. And really, a lot of it came from the stories my grandfather told me about his life growing up. He grew up in this area. Ned is not especially based on him, but a lot of what he goes through are things that happened to my grandfather and his father. So his, his father survived Gallipoli and the Somme and came back and was just told, keep running the orchard, everything's fine, and would have what we would now call severe PTSD, but back then was called shell shock and don't make your problems anyone else's problems. And that informed the lineage of his family all the way down. But at the same time, he and his sons all, all loved each other and loved their kids and loved their wives and their cousins and their communities, and there was this great sense of community among them. And I always thought there was this strange disparity between the need to appear resilient and strong and the inability to be able to express yourself. So a lot of it came from that. And also just the stories my grandfather talked about his life growing up. You know, I was in like 1995 up until 2020 when he'd tell me about them. Um, just felt like another world, even though it was the exact same place. It felt like hearing, listening to a Viking myth or something. Because it's just, you know, I was riding my bike around, playing a Game Boy, um, getting up to trouble, and he was talking about shooting rabbits and buying his own boat when he was 15 and, and living off the land and going up to Longreach to be a um, roustabouts picker-upper, if anyone knows what that means. Um, and it all just, it felt like it, completely out of another time, and I always wanted to, to capture that because those experiences felt so real, but not in the way I'd ever read about. Hmm. There's a lot of killing that goes on too. I mean, there's quite, even though it's 
in many ways a serene story, but there's a lot of um, humans raising animals but killing animals and animals killing animals. And it almost seemed to me like a metaphor for the war that's going on out of our line of vision. Is that right? I mean, were you kind of echoing the war in any way or is that my interpretation? Um, I think that's your interpretation. Okay. And that's that's fine. I've, I've, other people have said that to me as well. And mm. look, I, I try and write in a way where I like, to, I like books that feel like two-way conversations between a writer and a reader where I bring something to the novel that I want to express or I feel powerfully about and then a reader can take any form of reading out of it. I think that's a much better way than having an author coming down from on high, being didactic, saying this is what the book's about. Um, I didn't intend to do that or think about that at all. I think if I tried to write um, explicit metaphors into my work, it would be just terrible. Um, um, I think it's better if they kind of occur uh, naturally or um, without intention. Um, I, I wrote about animals killing each other and people kill animals because that's what happens on farms and in the bush. Um, and I'm really... I'm actually really surprised when people um, take out of the book take anything I write that, oh, it was really quite violent and there was this, you know, you know, animals got slaughtered and they killed each other and I just get confused. I'm like, that's, that's, that's called a farm. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, called, you, that's called nature. Um, I, didn't, I didn't really think of the book as particularly violent or much killing at all. Um, but then afterwards I found out there was a lot in it. Um, <laughs> I think yeah. it's the detailed sort of close-in way that you tell us about these things, uh, in the same way that you tell us about restoring a beautiful boat. You know, it's the, the craft and the, the daily work that these people are doing in so many different ways. Um, so we feel we're there and there's blood and guts and yeah, those are the survival and all of that going on. Yes, it's the detail I mentioned earlier because it's the detail that affects you. It's not, oh, he went and killed a rabbit. That, that sounds... That is a bit of a cliche of going and trapping a rabbit and killing it, but the reality of it is putting your thumb in behind its hind leg and popping it out and ripping the skin back over the top of its head. That's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's the reality of what it is, and if you're going to feel anything, and, and as a writer or a reader, be immersed in what's happening on the page, then sometimes you do need that level of detail in order to be sucked out of your chair and into the page. Have you done that yourself? Yes. Um, everyone I know has. Mm. <laughs> Well, not here, obviously, but um, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, and to me, that, that there's honesty in accuracy, and that is what brings in an emotional level is to to have that detail. I'm just not very interested in in skimming over it because it's an acceptable or easy thing to say. I, I, that would just be. Um, I just think that would be boring. Um, yeah. There's a qual in this novel. And you might have to explain to some of these Sydney people what a qual is, but um, it's uh, a real animal. And uh, it has a fairly central place in the book. Could you explain a little bit about that and why you used the qual? Yeah, sure. Um, so Ned's out trying to catch rabbits um, to sell their pelts to the army of slouch hats to make money. He accidentally traps a qual, um, a spotted tail qual to be specific, which is about you know, the size of a cat with a longer tail and much more um, angry. And um, every instinct and every logic tells him he should probably kill it because his pelt will be worth a lot of money because it's very beautiful. And also, he's caught it because it's trying to steal his sister's chickens. And anyone who's lived on a farm in an area where there are quolls knows that they will kill ten times more chickens than a fox will, and they're a lot smarter. Um, but he just cannot bring himself to kill it. 
because it is this beautiful, savage animal and a part of him, for whatever reason he doesn't understand, just in the way he doesn't understand his relationship with the land, can't bring himself to put his boot on its head. And he spends part of the novel then rehabilitating it while hiding it from his family because it's the wrong thing to do in terms of farming. And he has this very intense relationship with it where the whole time he has it right up to the point where he, he, it's healed and he releases it, he still doesn't really know why he did it but he knows somehow that it was the right thing to do. And I just wanted to have that in there as this way of depicting his lack of knowledge about what he's doing and his lack of immersion in the land that he loves so much. Mm. Um, and I really wanted to write about a quoll. <laughs> it was gripping. Yeah. Could you give Thank us you. a little reading, please? Yeah, sure. Um, this isn't about the quoll, sorry. Uh, Ned does kill a lot of rabbits, so again, I'm sorry if anyone's squeamish about that, but he ends up using the money to buy his own boat. And this is just a short section from when he's bought this green old boat and he's stripping the paint of it and he realises it's, it's made of hue and pine. Maybe it was just exhaustion from the day's labour, or it was the plan he'd obsessed over for so long finally coming together, or the romantic slant of the low sun's light. Or maybe he cautiously let himself realise it was none of these things. Maybe he was just experiencing the truth that this boat was glorious in ways he could not fully comprehend, that its golden hue was overbearing in its richness, that the way its neat design caused it to slice through the air, even as it lay stationary, was somehow savagely beautiful. The boat seemed to lunge towards the river, as if running home. Compounding all this was something else he had not expected, the stripped woods aroma. Now that the stale, petrol-like scent of the paint was gone, Ned was hit by a spicy, sappy pine smell, somehow both cleansing and intoxicating, subtle and strong. It was entirely new to him, and it was unavoidable. At first he thought a lubricant had leaked onto his tools, or that his sister had spilled perfume on his clothes. It was only when he lowered his face to the boat that he realised it was coming from the timber, rising from the grains to settle in his nose and throat. He had never worked closely with wood before, if he thought of it as having a smell at all, it had been as the broad scent of the forest, the pungency of rotting vegetation, the clearing menthol of eucalypt, the off-sweet tang of wild blossoms, the dankness of mud, the freshness of rain, the rot of a dead wallaby, the chalky minerality of broken rock. The odours of trees belonged to their leaves and flowers. He'd assumed timber would be mute. He wondered at his wrongness as the wood spice filled his lungs and sank into his blood. He felt tricked, drunk. He hadn't known the world could do things like this to him. Thank you. Love that. It's interesting that all three books, by coincidence, um, are centred around a boy, uh, the experience of a boy, the viewpoint of a boy. Fiona, there's a lost boy at the centre of your book, but, of course, many other characters who I couldn't even count up. Do you have a count in your head of how many characters you have? I did know at one point. It's, it, there are over 20 point-of-view characters. Isn't yeah. There? And I'm really interested in that shifting point of view, both from person to person and um, from hill to plane to, you know, the different places they are all circling around each other, this boy who everyone is searching for or worrying about. Could you talk a bit about how you created that and how you 
turned it into a coherent whole. There's a constant sense of movement, day, time of day changing and so on. And you've managed it so beautifully. Oh, thank you. I mean, logistically, there was a lot of there were a lot of pieces of paper stuck to my wall that I was constantly writing on. Um, but it was it was really important to me from the moment I realised I was writing this book that uh, the novel be full of many voices. I didn't want. I mean, it's sort of related to what Robbie was saying earlier about this sense of a of a, an author coming down from on high and saying, "This is what this book is about. This is what you sh you should sort of believe or take from it." I didn't want to write an historical novel that claimed to be a monolithic voice that said, this is the past and this is how it was experienced and this is what you should take away from it. I wanted to write a book that was full of people who would have really, really different opinions about exactly those things. And so uh, I, I set myself up for this enormous challenge of making sure the book was full of many, many voices and then thinking about how their experience of the landscape might change. Um, we, uh, uh, James was talking about this in relation to his character in particular and the ways in which a mental state changes the way we experience landscape. I was really interested in that from character to character as well as different moods, but also the kind of cultural and, and social and, and political and ethical and racial and gender lenses and all of those things that affect the way in which we interact with the land around us. And so I wanted to try and capture as many of those as possible or, or that I felt sort of able to in in the book so that it was difficult to come away from it saying the landscape is almost a character in this novel, although that has been said, um, because the landscape is a different character to every single character mm. in the book. Uh, and that was one of the things that really interested me. It's why there are artists in the book and landscape pa uh, landscape painter in particular. I mean, the term landscape itself is is so interesting. It's based on um, on a Dutch term for painting, and it really is is you know initially framing our concept of country as what can be or should be painted and how it should be represented. And I find that a really interesting part of how we encounter these extraordinary Australian places, but we also think about how they've been represented in art and literature across the centuries of white settlement. Mm. Perhaps you would read to us, because sure. your reading touches on this. Uh, so I'm going to read a very tiny bit from the beginning, which is when... Um, the boy, Denny, goes goes missing. Um, so you just get a paragraph of dust storm, which is, which is how he gets lost. And then I'm going to jump to a point where the Swedish landscape painter is thinking about the dust storm. The boy looked north and saw a high, dark wall over the ranges. The wall was moving towards him. It was made of dust, and when the dust reached him, it hid the sun. The sun was there. The boy could see it through his narrowed eyes. But it was brown now and silly, only as bright as a lamp or the moon. The dust rolled down from the north in secret colours, very soft, until the wind came up behind it. Then it stung. The boy held the sack across his face, as his father had taught him to do when the dust storms came, and he turned around and began to walk, and that's how he got lost, trying to walk home in the dust. When the storm had passed, his mother went out into the yard and spat red onto the red ground. She looked for him in the direction he had gone and saw no sign. And then later that day, we, when that evening, 
we encounter uh, Carl, the Swedish painter, and his English uh, wife, who is also an artist. That afternoon, they'd watched the dust storm advancing over the wrinkled plain, a russet cloud with a froth of light on top of it. He and Bess both sketched the cloud and half hoped it might reach them, but they were high enough or far enough away and were spared. Bess says, I kept waiting for it to open up and Moses to come walking out. Yes, says Carl, but he was waiting for something else, for the dust to plunge him into darkness. After all, this is the desert. A prophet should meet the devil here. But a true prophet, Carl acknowledges, wouldn't undertake his pilgrimage in spring. A prophet wouldn't bring his wife with him, or for that matter, be ordered on the pilgrimage by his wife, who has arranged the sale of an album of desert drawings to a list of valued subscribers. Uh, I'm just jumping slightly. Bess, whom he married in part for her capacity for seriousness, tells him that having agreed to emigrate to Australia, he must adapt himself to painting Australian subjects. But no Australian subject, is there such a thing, has interested him until this sky, the thought of which exhausts him. So on the night of Minna Bauman's wedding, Carl leans against a tree in the foothills of the Flinders Ranges, smokes and sings his lullaby designed to put the sky to sleep. When it's awake, the sky makes him think of ways to paint it, and he isn't ready yet. He doesn't trust it, and he doesn't trust this country, which claims to be a desert. There are trees, grasses, flowers. On this particular hill tonight, trees resembling pines, my God, as if this were a scraggly outpost of the Schwarzwald. Bess, worried about his lungs, insisted that he leave Sweden for a warmer climate. Fine. But they might have gone to the ochre streets of Rome or to the Holy Land to paint wan pictures of palms and ancient walls. Yet here he is, so far south that he'll soon fall off the earth and pass through the skies of Europe like a comet. No, it's emphatically not Palestine. There there are, as it turns out, camels here, which stink and scare the horses. Lovely. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask you about um, the place of um, Aboriginal people in your book, whether they're present or absent or, you know, whether in writing about the land all writers have to at least consider the, the uh, ownership and the history of, of Aboriginal people um, in, in the place that you're writing about. And um, Fiona, obviously yours is the most explicit in this and you have several Aboriginal characters. Um, could you talk about how you approached this, you know, sensitive but very important subject, which you had to do? <laughs> sure. Yeah. <clears throat> and what, what's the land that you were writing about, the ab Aboriginal land, so Aboriginal the country? The pocket of land that I invented sits within uh, two different nations. One of them is the Nakana Nation. The other one uh, is what is now called the Adyamatna Nation, but was the Yadlia Water at the time of my um, of my novel. Uh, you know, this it, this was the the thing that I found most um, intimidating, most uh, anxious making, I suppose, about writing this book. If I'm going to deal with colonial history and a landscape like this one, then I have no choice but to to 
pay attention to the, the horrors and violence of colonial history. In fact, it was built into the conception of the book. One of the words that struck me as I experienced these ghost towns of the Flinders was unsettling, and I realised how, how appropriate that was, that what I was looking at was a history of unsettlement, um, not just of, of these wheat farmers who failed, but also of the original custodians, the Nakana, the Yadliawada, who were violently dispossessed of their land um, during an invasion that happened decades before the book began. Uh, so the, the approach was one of, uh, of sort of great, great humility, of, of respect, also of writing a book into which these anxieties are woven intricately. So the whole book is deeply interested in questions of who gets to tell the stories of the land and why and at what cost. Uh, that's why there's so many artists in it behave, behaving badly. <laughs> right. um, All of that makes it a very contemporary <laughs> historical novel. You know, it's very much through the filters that we're thinking about our country now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah very much mm. so. So a lot of research, a lot of consultation, mm -hmm. um, and and a lot of structuring the book. So it is uh, specifically in conversation about this very subject. And of course, when you've got Aboriginal trackers out looking for a lost boy, suddenly the class system is slightly upended and they have an advantage over those who don't belong in this land. It's very interesting the way that dynamic changes. It, it's, is that right? Am I yeah, reading no, that correctly? Definitely. One of the, I mean, it's very, I, I mean, if, if people haven't read my book, you might think, well, the last thing we need is another book about a white kid who goes missing in the bush. <laughs> and it's really, that's really deliberate. I mean, this yeah. is, a, this is a, a deep cultural story of white Australia that I'm deliberately taking up and interrogating in the book. And one of the things that I find interesting about the mythology around colonial lost children is the way in which uh, First Nations people have been allowed into the, the cultural narrative in a positive way through their tracking abilities. And it's very, very rare to encounter that. And I'm not saying this as a, um, yay, yay us, we did a good job for once. I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting and complicated way in which something that Australian white history tends to occlude was, was sort of happy to offer up and say, look at this sort of, this, these great skills and this, this wonderful thing. And I find that really, really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Robbie, your character, Ned, does have a sense of deep history and increasingly becomes aware of the history. Would you talk a little bit about your consciousness of um, the, the place of the Aboriginal people in here? Yeah, sure. Sorry, I'm just being reminded of how good Fiona's book is. Yeah, um, I know. It's really good. It does so much, doesn't um, it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Ned grows up on the lands of the, the, the Latera Marina people, which... Um, around that part of Lutrawita, Tasmania. But he never meets any of them, and he's kind of unaware of their connection to people. And I guess that the thing that I, I don't know how many people here would know, which is totally reasonable, is that there was a very deliberate act of attempted genocide in Tasmania by the colonial government in a way that didn't really exist over the rest of the um, country, and that it was open government or colonial government policy to, to kill Aboriginal people on site and do their very best to try and exterminate them. One of the greatest evils of Australian colonisation. Um, they were unsuccessful, but they were so nearly successful to the point that only a group of 
35 Aboriginal people came back from Flinders Island to Tasmania, um, to the point where when someone like Ned was growing up as a descendant of settlers and invaders and convicts, he would have been told very, very regularly that Tasmanian Aboriginal people were extinct. It's what he was told, it's what my grandfather was told, it's what my mother's generation was told. It was what I was told until around the year 2000, even though the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre was just down the road. Um, it's very strange. Um, I won't go too much into it because we don't have much time left. But um, Ned grows up with an awareness of the people because those stories were passed down and his awareness of the original owners of the land and some elements of how their lives were lived and their connections to the landscape. But to him, all that knowledge is kept at arm's length because he's never experienced any of it himself. And it also informs why he has no strong cultural connection to place because to a white boy that, that there is none. He can't name all the trees. There's no 60,000 years of deep history of the cultures that were there because his very recent ancestors have did their very best to destroy it. And so because he is interested and keeps an awareness of, of the people who lived there originally and some of the traditions they had, he feels like he's kind of done enough and that he's been a pretty good, almost progressive citizen in, in, in knowing these things in a way that the people around him are completely oblivious and uncaring about. And it kind of comes to a head towards the end of the novel in that it is revealed to him that just knowing and being aware and being vaguely polite is not enough. It, it, it's not enough to be a white Australian and just have nice sentiments about the Indigenous custodianship of land and the original inhabitants of the land and pat yourself on the back and say, well, at least I'm not openly racist, um, which is very much the culture I come from. I'm not at all saying anyone here is like that. Um, that's, that's what it's like where I come from. And I wanted that to be a point in the novel to, to contend with. And it doesn't end easily. He doesn't come to any nice conclusion about his relationship to the land, his relationship with the people who lived there for 60,000 years. He is unmoored by this and doesn't know what to do. And all he does is realise that he hasn't done enough. And I, I think that's something I wanted to be present in the book because that's very much reflects the reality of the land as it is now. Thank you. James, there's no obvious presence of Aboriginal people or history in your novel, and I think these troubled adolescent kids probably aren't aware of much beyond their own experience. But how about you as author or as a boy yourself? Was was this part of your thinking? Is it necessary it, as an author to have yeah, it as part I, I, of your thinking? I think it absolutely is, and I think in writing about these landscapes, it's absolutely something that should be um, considered and addressed. I thought about this a lot in writing Denizen in uh, how to explicitly incorporate these themes and if that was even appropriate. The conclusion I came to was that um, that was not my story to tell and that I would be doing, I think, a worse evil of being, a, you know, a white man tokenistically trying to introduce some of these ideas. Um, I think also one of the core ideas in Denizen is this idea of not belonging to a land. And I hope that to some degree that speaks to that settler's guilt and that idea of, um, it almost feels like <laughs> in an awful way, a, a natural justice for, for some of the horrors that have been done in the past. But it's something that I, I didn't feel like I was, um, it was my place to, to address more explicitly than that. And I hope that doesn't sound like a cop-out. It is something I thought at great length about how best to address. Um, and my conclusion was that, as I say, that the, the best thing I can do is to not to add another uninformed voice to that conversation. Okay. So I'll just thank you all very much for coming and thank our authors.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.